in uh, January of 1986, the super uh, or the space shuttle Challenger was launched into the, the sky. On board were uh, seven crew members, one of which, if you remember that day, was a social studies teacher, the uh, uh, one who was not a professional astronaut, and so it was a significant day. Well, as they flew into the sky, millions of people were watching, and perhaps you can remember tuning in that day, but within 73 seconds, that space shuttle exploded in the air. And as it did, as people were watching, some who were present thought to themselves, what happened? With all of these experts and all that's been going on, how could something like this happen? Well, after months of investigation, they found out that it was actually something quite small that was a problem, at least in comparison to the size of the shuttle. It was an O-ring, a circular gasket that sealed the right rocket booster that had failed due to low temperature. And this week, I actually took a moment to watch that video, and uh, uh, I could just, you know, if you remember the day, if you did have a chance to watch it, the emotion that people felt. But as I was watching it and considering the article that I was reading about it, I couldn't help but think to myself how such a small thing, in comparison to the large shell, could cause such great destruction and such great death. All seven crew members lost their life. Uh, this morning, I want to take some time to talk about sins we tolerate in our lives. The sins we tolerate in our relationships. You know, sins, they uh, can seem small and perhaps inconsequential, but they can be quite destructive and downright deadly as well. Uh, there are some sins we would just say, you know, we avoid that. We would never do something like that. We stay away from that. But there are some sins that we allow into our lives to linger, that we can allow to tolerate in our relationships and even in the church. And today we're going to talk about two particular sins that James speaks about in James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 17 together. Uh, James is going to confront the sin uh, of slander and the sin of self-sufficiency. And these are sins that the church has been tolerating in the first century that James is going to call out. Uh, we've been talking in the letter to James about the marks of spiritual maturity. Uh, in the past, we've talked about things like Jesus being Lord of our lips, if he's truly Lord of our life. We've talked about the mark of godly wisdom over our life. Well, today we're going to talk about the mark of repentance when it comes to specific sins that James is going to confront in the text today. And so in honor of the reading of the word, would you stand with me as we read together? James chapter 4 verse 11 says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and not does not do it, to him it is sin. The word of the Lord, you may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we dig into the text today, we're going to talk about two sins among the saints. Two sins that the church has been tolerating in the first century that James confronts. The sin of slander in verses 11 to 12. And then the sin of self-sufficiency. Making plans without considering God's plans for our life in verses 13 on to 17. Uh, as we dig into our text today, we're going to first take a look at the sin of slander. The sin of slander. As we read about it, we hear the first command in considering slander, and it says this in uh, verse 11, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law. I want to take a few observations about the command and then talk about the reasons why the command is given. The first thing we see here in the text is the way that James addresses these believers, these recipients of the letter, and he's done this throughout the letter written by James to these scattered believers throughout the Roman Empire. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Brethren is significant because this reminds us that these are believers. If you want to describe them this way, they are saints. They have passed from death to life. They've accepted Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. But even though they are saved, they still struggle with various sins. They're still in process and they're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ moment by moment, day by day. And one of the sins that James confronts among them is the sin of slander. Speaking evil of one another and judging one another in a way that doesn't build each other up according to their needs in Christ Jesus. Uh, when you consider how he calls them brethren, he's already done so. If I've got my count right, six times he calls them brethren up to this point. And then this is, and then three times before this point, he uses a more enduring term. He calls them beloved brethren. But if you were with us last time in chapter four, he had some choice words for them. If you remember in chapter 4, verse 4, he called them adulteresses. And then in verse 8, he called them sinners and uh, double-minded. And so we might ask the question, why does James kind of go from calling them adulteresses, sinners, and double-minded? And then a few verses later, in verse 11, he goes and calls them brethren. Do not speak evil of one another. Well, this reminds us a couple things about God in relationship to our sin. At least sins we allow to, to linger in our lives or in our relationships that we don't deal with in the manner that we should. Sins such as slander, speaking evil one of another. Uh, uh, when you see this here, when it says, well, in chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 8, when he calls them adulterous sinners and double-minded, it reminds us that God is a holy God. God is a, a just God, that He is a righteous God, that He is the essence of goodness, and God takes sin seriously. Those sins that we consider to be very serious, and sometimes those sins that we overlook and we say they're but small and maybe even inconsequential, when the reality is if the longer we allow them to linger, the more destruction they bring and ultimately death they bring. 
So James reminds us as he calls them adulteresses and, and sinners and double-minded that God takes sin seriously and so should we. Sin is a serious matter. God is a holy God, a just God, a righteous God. But as he calls them brethren once more, it reminds us that God is also a gracious God. Back in verse 10, he reminded us that if you will humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. So when James calls them adulteresses, sinners, and double-minded, his purpose and desire isn't to condemn them, but is that they would be convicted. That they would be encouraged to change their walk and their way and to surrender their selves, themselves to the Lord, even their tongues in ways that they've been overlooking the things of God. So we're reminded as he calls them brethren once more that God is gracious. Now, maybe you don't like to refer to yourself this way, but uh, in God's eyes, we are called saints. You don't have to go through a process of sainthood through the Roman Catholic Church to be described that way. Rather, when you profess Jesus as your Savior and Lord, Positionally speaking, God the Father looks down on you and he doesn't see your sins, your good actions, or your bad actions. He simply sees what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf on the cross. It's a substitutionary atonement. So when Jesus said to Telestai on the cross, it is finished, he said it was paid in full. We bear the blood of Christ on our life. So when the Father looks at you and I as one who has been delivered from our sin through salvation and forgiveness of sins, he sees us as saints. We've been declared righteous. And that reminds us of his amazing grace. So why is there sometimes slander on our tongues? Why do we sometimes speak evil of one another? And that's the seeming contradiction that James wants to confront. Confront. You have been declared righteous, but if there's something in your life, something on your tongue that needs to change, allow God's grace to begin to change that. So he begins to confront this sin, and we get to see the recipients. They're referred to as brethren. These are believers, and believers struggle at times. Sometimes we say things that we regret as it's coming off our tongue. James already spoke about this in chapter 3. Why does he have to go back to it? Because we need the reminder. <laughs> when it comes to our tongue, often whenever God repeats himself, well, God already covered that in chapter 3, right? No, we need to hear it again. We need to be reminded, it, uh, reminded about it once more. So we see the recipients of the command. Secondly, I want to talk about the meaning. Of the command. He says, do not speak evil of one another. Now, I've defined it, even as I've been speaking, as slander. You know, speaking about someone in a manner that I should not. Tearing them down instead of building them up in Christ Jesus. Uh, back when we were in James 3, one of the texts that uh, I went back to that I think brings some, gives some light into this meaning is Ephesians 4.29. You know, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for bringing others up according to their needs in Christ Jesus. What that text says in the Greek is don't let any rotten words come out of your mouth. Because that word there is rotten fruit. And sometimes we can allow, sometimes we can allow rotten things to flow off of our tongue. But it says only speak those things 
that are helpful in encouraging, building others up according to their needs in Christ Jesus. So to speak evil of one another, we can't just define it as slander or gossip or backbiting or any of these other things, but we must define it this way. Anything that comes out of our mouth that does not build others up according to their needs in Christ Jesus is speaking evil of them. So what I say may be true, but if it doesn't, help the believer, the fellow believer, and instead tears them down instead of builds them up and doesn't encourage them according to their needs in Christ Jesus, whether it be correction or love or whatever it may be, then maybe we don't really need to say it. And so it's this idea that do not speak evil of one another. Speak things that are going to encourage and maybe even correct, but don't speak those things that will draw that person away from God in their personal relationship with God. So do not speak evil of one another. And we can define that as gossip. Uh, I like the Greek word for gossip. It's actually gasgusmas. Sounds like gossip, you know, whispers. If you say it really slow, gasgusmas, gasgusmas, gasgusmas. I mean, it's, the whispers are just going around. And, uh, and gossip, the problem with it is, is we can sometimes hide it in a prayer request. Instead of speaking directly to that person, we say, well, I heard, and that's how you know it's gossip, because you heard about it. So whenever it comes up, you're done. I heard that this person is struggling with sin. Can we pray for them? When the better thing to do in Christ Jesus was to go directly to that person before bringing them up in prayer among our fellow believers. And sometimes people talk about people and talk this way or that way. Well, maybe I need to go directly to that person. So speaking evil of someone can, can come up in gossip and our whispers. And instead of following Matthew 18 and going directly to that person, we end up gasgusmasing. And those whispers go around. It comes up in slander, speaking ill of one another, criticizing one another. We're not talking about constructive criticism or good kind of correction, but a kind that just beats people down. James, as I said, when he spoke to them as adulteresses and sinners, his purpose was not to condemn them and to, build, to beat them down, but to convict them, to draw them back to the grace of God that they would return to him. And so we get to see the meaning of, of what it means to speak evil of one another. But to speak evil with one, of one another is also, um, at least the way that James speaks about it in the next sentence, closely related to judging one another. Because if you keep reading, it says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges a brother. I want to take a moment to talk about judging one another. Because it's important. There is a good, righteous kind of judgment that we should exercise. And there is also an evil kind of judgment. A judgment that doesn't build others up according to their needs in Christ Jesus. So if I can use Ephesians 4.29 once more to shed light on a good kind of judgment and a wrong kind of judgment. Let's talk about what the text is not talking about here. Because there is a righteous kind of a judgment. The kind of righteous kind of judgment is a discerning judgment. As believers, we should be able to discern between right and wrong, good and evil. And we should exercise that as believers. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 16, the same text in chapter 7, verse 1, that talks about, Do not judge, lest you also be judged. It says, Beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, we should exercise a discernment, a discerning judgment among us to discern truth from error. If someone comes and teaches a gospel that is not consistent with the good news of Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we should be able to discern that. We should be able to tell the difference between those who claim to be believers and those whose life doesn't necessarily show the fruit of being a believer. We should take a look at their testimony and whether or not their testimony reflects the truth that is being proclaimed. So there's a good kind of judgment, discerning right from wrong, good from evil, truth from error, and false teachers from those who are true teachers. In 2 Timothy 2, 17-18, Paul, he actually names people who are false teachers. He talks about them in this way. He says, and their message will spread like cancer. He says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So we should be able to discern these things. This is a good kind of judgment. There's also a loving kind of judgment we're called to exercise in the church, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it talks about how we should go about talking to a believer we have a disagreement with or a conflict with. If a fellow believer, we are concerned on the path that they are on, maybe they're compromising in a small way, and we want to encourage them off of that path, we should go to them directly. In chapter 18, verse 15, verse 15 of Matthew, it says, go directly to that person doesn't say talk about them behind their back. <laughs> doesn't say hide it in a prayer request. But it says talk to them directly. Don't whisper around, but go to them directly. If that person still doesn't uh, come to their senses and it still continues on the path they're on, it talks about bringing two or three witnesses. And then in the end, if they're continuing on the path that they're in, that we should eventually remove them from the church. Because it, it reminds us that we are to take sin Serious. We are to take sin seriously. And God takes it seriously. But if ever it should get to that point that the church as a whole should say they're walking in a manner that is not befitting of one whose testimony is a follower of Jesus Christ, the purpose of removal is always that they would be reconciled back. To show that sin should be taken seriously. That's Matthew 18. Verse 15 and on. So there is a good kind of judgment. We should hold one another accountable. It's like with our children. If, a chi if our child does something that's not correct, we should correct them. We shouldn't let them do whatever they want. Because as we talked about it, sin that may seem smaller and consequential can often, if tolerated and left to linger, can cause great destruction and even death. Never underestimate sin. It may not cause it now. It may eventually come. But we should take sin seriously. But when we do it, especially Matthew 15, we are to speak truth and we're called to do it in love. So what kind of judgment are we speaking of here? It's the kind of judgment that doesn't help others according to their needs in Christ Jesus, but actually does the opposite. Pulls them away from God. This is a hypocritical judgment. You know, back in chapter 7 of Matthew, people like to use this text, right? Do not judge... Lest you also be judged. Don't be 
calling me out, all right? That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus spoke about. But there's a discerning judgment, but there's also a hypocritical judgment. That's what we're talking about here. If you read chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Judge not that you may not be judged. For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? It's the idea here, if I'm going to practice Matthew 18, and I notice that a fellow brother is in sin, and I want to correct them or encourage them unto good works and godly living, that I should first, before I go to them, examine my own heart. <laughs> examine my own life and consider, okay, is there, some, is there a plank in my eye when there's just a little speck in their eye? So this is a hypocritical kind of judgment. It's saying, let me get right before God and make sure my heart and my motives are right when I talk to this fellow believer in order that I don't do it in an ungodly manner. It's important to see that. And, and so I examine my heart first. So this is a hypocritical judgment. Romans 2.3 says, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Let's take accountability for our own sin. And then, as we have opportunity, encourage one another unto good works. Love one another. That's where sanctification happens, you know? In the church, among believers, when things aren't going well, when I'm rubbing up on, each, on one another, I, I learn if I'm a patient person and when I find myself in difficult situations. If I'm not in a difficult place, I tend to be more patient. But when things are not going well, when I don't get a lot of sleep, when I'm hungry... That's when some of these areas of my heart can express themselves in ways that I know they shouldn't. So a hypocritical judgment and then also a, a superficial judgment. This is making a judgment on people before knowing all the facts. How many of you have ever judged somebody and done so and then realized their story? Have you ever uh, talked to somebody, they're just a hard person to get along with. They just have a bad attitude. They, they've got their walls up. I don't know what it is about that person. And then you get to know their story. You get to learn about some of their past. And you consider and have a little bit more grace and compassion on where they come from. And you understand where they come from. The superficial judgment is coming to a conclusion and a judgment, prejudging somebody before knowing all the facts and knowing the whole story. Um, in Mark 7, 6 to 7, it says, Jesus answered them, Well, did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, you can go through all of the actions of being a Christian. You can come to church, partake of communion, even get baptized. But if your heart isn't genuine in your relationship with Jesus Christ, what, uh, what, what, what good is that? And it's a reminder that God knows the heart. God judges the heart. He's the only one who can see the heart. And when we make these superficial judgments without learning the background or the story, we can fall into speaking evil of others in ways that we should not. Uh, and then lastly, the uh, a wrong kind of judgment is making a final judgment on the soul of a, a believer. Now, as believers, we're called to be fruit inspectors, right? Someone might say, you can't judge me, but I'm called to be a fruit inspector. By their fruit, you shall know them. So I can say, based on someone's life, when they pass on, I can say, I, I really believe they were a believer. 
I heard their testimony, I watched their walk, and I see the fruit of their life. Or I might say, you know, I don't know if they had a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But while we can say, I saw the fruit or I didn't see the fruit, only God can make the final judgment. We don't have the ability to do that. We leave that in the hands of God. And so we make we exercise the wrong kind of judgment uh, when we try to say, this person's going to heaven or this person's going to hell. Uh, we know that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you're saved. We can know for sure whether or not we're saved, but let's not make the final judgment on others. And so we get to see the meaning of the command. Don't speak evil of one another. Don't judge one another. There's a righteous judgment, a discerning judgment, and there's also an, unright un an unrighteous one. Well, why does he give them this command? What are the reasons? As we continue to read, it tells us, it says, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, this is in an evil way, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Uh, in other words, uh, when you speak evil of a brother, judge a brother, not according to their needs in Christ Jesus, you are usurping the authority of God's law. You are saying, I am more authoritative than Scripture. Uh, you say, well, what kind of law are we talking about here? We're talking about that law back in chapter 2, verse 8, that James speaks about, the royal law of love. Love one another... As, or love, let me read it. Verse chapter two, verse eight says, "But if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well." We're called to love one another, and so if we speak evil of one another, we're not doing that. When we're judging one another in a wicked way, and not a discerning way, or a gracious and loving way, then we're not practicing that. And what we're saying is that we know better. Than the law. We are redefining right from wrong. This happened in the garden. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and Eve was being tempted by the serpent and he presented her this fruit and she said, Well, we could eat of all the trees, but not that one. And the serpent basically says, Well, God wants to hold you back from all that he knows that you can have. You can, you can be like him if you eat this fruit. And if you remember reading in Genesis, she looks at the fruit. And in God's eyes, he told her it was wrong, but she looked at it and she saw that it was good. What God has called evil, Eve has now called good. And what we do is we redefine right and wrong and we begin to say we ourselves know better than God. We ourselves know better than Scripture. So when we break the law, we are usurping the authority of the law, not loving our neighbor as we should. And so that's what James's basic argument here is. Now you may not think that, right? You, that doesn't go through your mind. <laughs> when you uh, speak evil of someone or judge someone and let something slip off of your tongue, that's not going through your mind, perhaps. But James is saying this is what's happening. You are saying that your way is better than God's way. Your way of doing things is better. Because if somebody speaks to me that way, or says the things they said to me, I'm going to bite back. That's just who I am. And some people say, that's just who I am. That's my personality. No, you are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. The new has come. If Jesus is Lord of your life, let him also be Lord of your lips as well. And so the reason... 
James gives this command and says, uh, you're usurping the authority of the law. But secondly, you, you usurp the authority of the lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver, verse 12 says. There's only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, when it says there's one lawgiver, of course, that's God. He's got the final authority on all matters to which he speaks. I don't live my life according to your standards or my standards. I live my life according to the authority of God's word given to me by God through the holy scriptures that he's provided. Um, and so it says the lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Uh, that reminds us that God has the ultimate uh, ability to discern the heart of man. Whether or not they truly know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, or if they don't. Now, Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, we find ourselves submitting not just to the law that God gives us through his word, love your neighbor as yourself, but also submitting to the law giver. He is the Lord of my life, and therefore, he should be Lord of my lips. I can't gossip, I can't slander, I'm not to be the type of person who backbites because I am a new creation in Christ. I am a fellow brother or sister in Christ. I have a testimony before God and before one another. So, what's the application here? We are called, when it comes to slander, speaking evil of one another, judging one another, to submit to God in what we say. We can't just say anything we want. This is a reminder back from chapter 3. We have to say and take into consideration what God would have us say. Once again, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Just a few words of application here. Number one, listen before you leap to judgment. Take time to get to know each other. Get time to know the story behind what has happened. You know, when someone slanders you or backbites you or says something that really offends you, the automatic fleshly response is to bite back. But just take time to listen, take time to pray, and take time to process it. Learn their story. Maybe it's a miscommunication and maybe it can be solved instead of um, causing this to become a conflict or an all-out war as we spoke about in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Uh, secondly, demonstrate grace. Demonstrate grace. Uh, don't be offended so easily. I love this verse in Ecclesiastes. I find it helpful. In Ecclesiastes 7, 21 to 22, it says, Do not take to heart everything people say. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. In other words, people are going to talk behind your back and every now and again you're going to hear some negative things. For many times also, you, also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. In other words, don't be so easily offended. Exercise grace as God has given you grace. Give that grace back. And of course, it's hard to give grace. It's easier to receive it. But as you receive the grace of God, it will give you the ability to more easily give grace back. And then thirdly, love well. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you were to sin against yourself and to speak negatively about yourself, hopefully you would have the desire to forgive yourself. Not be so easily offended. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't gossip about them or talk behind their back or talk about them before speaking directly to them. And so just some words of application. I think here, if I can take a moment, I think speaking evil of one another is not just about what we say, but how we say it. How I many? If you're married this morning, you know that sometimes you can, or your spouse, or you may speak to somebody, and you may have thought it came across well, but they said, uh-uh, no, it didn't. And you see it based on their reaction. So speaking evil of one another, judging one another, also has to do with our tone. Because we're to speak truth, but speak it in love. I had a neighbor growing up who was a really nice Christian couple, really great couple, but the husband, he was just brutally honest, right? And his wife, I remember visiting, after we had gone to, I had gone to college and come back home, we visited our neighbor and we sat down for dinner with him, and his wife was just one of those ladies who was a little bit insecure about her cooking and was just looking for some affirmation from her husband. And she said, you know, honey, I'm not the best cook. And he responded this way, he said, you're right, honey, you're not. <laughs> the food was good, but honey, you're not. And, and, and you know what she was looking for? He was brutally honest. He probably didn't mean it that way, but it came across that way. It might have been, she might have been better said, you know, honey, uh, you're one of a kind. <laughs> Your cooking is one of a kind, and you're my wife, and I'll enjoy it that way. But let's be careful, not just what we say, but how we say it. And how many of you know, when it speaks of speaking evil of one another, particularly in the church, or slandering one another, judging one another, those we know the best, at least hopefully, are those we're married to, those that we're sitting next to. You know, every now and again, we can rub shoulders with one another, and, and things don't, and we can find ourselves in conflicts from time to time, but how we respond to those we love the most and who know us the most tells us a lot about who we are. And so if you would say, I don't speak evil of others, or I don't judge others, or I have the right tone, take a moment to talk to your spouse today. Take a moment to speak with your family and see just their response and how you come across. Because a lot of times your spouse hopefully will be more honest with you than others. So first, we get to see the sin of slander. And James confronts it and says, submit to God in what you say. Consider God before you allow certain things to slip off of your tongue. The second sin he confronts is the sin of self-sufficiency. The sin of self-sufficiency. We say, oh, I don't, I don't commit adultery. I don't murder. Uh, for the most part, I don't lie. I don't steal. All these big sins. But we can be guilty of this small one or at least seemingly small to us, an inconsequential one, but can have much destructive tendencies in our life and in our relationships. The sin of self-sufficiency. James describes this kind of person in verse 13. He says it this way, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. I just want to say this. James is not criticizing planning. Because throughout Scripture, especially in Proverbs, planning is good. He is confronting those who plan without taking God into, their, into consideration. It's okay to make plans, but if we're not making those plans with God in mind, that's the problem. The kind of person 
he's speaking to is, is, is one who will come and listen. He says, come now, you who say, it's this invitation. James is, is inviting some people, hey, after church, we're going to meet out in the, in the foyer, we're going to meet in the lobby, and, and come, I just want to come chat with you. This is a good opportunity for us to, to understand James's heart, because his desire is to speak to us this morning. It's for us to examine our hearts. Some people will look at this and they'll say, well, James is talking about a merchant or a businessman or entrepreneur who travels and does this or that and makes various plans. No, we all make plans. I don't know about you, but this morning you probably made a plan to come to church today. And in light of that plan, whether or not it was right off the bat or you planned it all week, you had to get dressed, you had to take care of yourself, you had to check the mirror and take care of all the things, find your mask, find your keys, and all of the rest. <laughs> and so we all make plans, but when we make plans, we need to make sure God is a part of those plans. The kind of person James speaks to here uh, is a person who sets their own schedule without considering God's in their life. They say, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, or we are going to do that. Now, in other words, have you ever, back in high school, I remember my senior year, they made us do one of those 15-year plans. Anyone ever do that? And you plan out your future 15 years from now. This is where I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to be doing. This is how many kids I'm going to have. I think back then, I said I'm going to have four boys, and now the Lord has given me two girls, so we'll see how those plans work out. But God is saying, invite me into your plans. Don't just say, today or tomorrow I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do this. Take into consideration God's will. God's will. How many of you at the beginning of this year, 2020, made some plans that coronavirus messed up? <laughs> I mean, even with the, with the church, with our trips, various things. I mean, it's caused so many things we could have never imagined. And yet, if we take God into consideration, we know he's got a plan and a purpose for all of it. Somehow God is using this and he's continuing to build his church and the gospel is going to continue to go out. But God is going to continue to do work. But we've got to take him into consideration. Today or tomorrow I will do this or that. Uh, and then they also set their own path. We will go to such and such a city. We're going to go that way. I'm going to be in Bisbee for five to ten years and then we're going to live here. How many of you thought you'd be here in Bisbee, you know? And somehow God brought you here, and you've been here for the amount of time that you have been. You never know how long God's going to have you in this place or maybe even move you to a new place. Take God into consideration as you make those plans. Um, when I think of making plans for ourselves, I think sometimes we can make plans for those we love, you know? And, and maybe not the best way we may say, I've got plans for you that may not necessarily line up with God's plans. I could use children for, for an example. I remember a story about a, uh, a mother who had uh, two kids and someone came up to her and said, hey, how old are your children? She said, well, the, the doctor is four and the engineer is seven. You know, she already had made plans for them. But it's a reminder that God has, if he's placed breath in their lungs, he's placed purpose in their lives. And as parents or as family members or as friends, we get to, in one another's life, discover what God's plan and purpose is for them. And so it's not just saying, I want to do this or I want to be successful. I want to make a lot of money or I just want to live in a small miniature home. It's saying, God, what is your will for me? 
How can I be most effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can I make a difference for you and your kingdom? Take into consideration God's plans. And then, of course, this is the type of person who, who, who predicts the outcome. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a profit in the end. This, this is the type of person who is okay to want to make a profit and to be successful, but make sure it's in alignment with God's will and God's word. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. Are you investing in things that are eternal? Are you investing in things that are, are temporal? You can make investments in this world, and it may be a good investment that keeps going into your bank account. But when we leave this world, all that stays behind. And the thing we need to take into consideration at whatever season of life we may be in is to ask the question, is this something that's going to have eternal benefits? Or am I wasting my time with this or that? And so James challenges them. The, the kind of person, he says, come and listen. And he says, don't just make plans. Make them with God in mind. We should invite God into those plans. Verse, four, uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time then vanishes away. James reminds the believers of their limitations. He says, this is why you shouldn't make plans without God. And the first of which is, it says, you do not know the future. <laughs> you can't tell the future. Now, you can make plans and, and say, we're going to do this or that, and, and I'm going to be successful in this area. But we really can't tell the future. And then James also reminds them that their life is brief and precious. It's like a mist that's here for a moment and disappears. Sometimes in the mornings, I'll go out on, and uh, some mornings are colder than others. It's starting to get a little bit colder. But I know that I need an extra jacket or a sweater when I go run, when I can see my breath in the air. And how many of you know when you breathe, you see it there for a moment, and then it disappears? This is our life. It's here for a moment, and it quickly disappears. Let's make plans in light of God's plans. And when you consider that, you know that, that, you know, I don't have a thousand years. Every moment is precious. I don't know about you, when, whenever I attend a, a funeral, I'm confronted with the reality of death. Like, death is real. It could take us at any moment and any time. We, we have to take life, consider life to be brief and precious. And to consider how am I using the short amount of time that I have left. Am I honoring God with it, or do I find myself doing something differently? And so just remember your limitations as you make plans. Know that God has put us on this earth for such a time as this, and the time span we have, what is that purpose? Why did God put you in busy? Why did God bring you to the First Southern Baptist Church in Warren? Why has God brought you to be a part of the body that you're in? Why has God given you the children and the grandchildren that you have? Why has God put you in the circles of influence that you're in? Consider those things because God wants you to leave an impact, a legacy that outlives you and me. Hopefully when I'm dead and gone, people don't remember me, but remember the Jesus Christ that I so loved and the one that I worship. That's an eternal investment that keeps giving and giving. And maybe, just maybe, even before I'm long gone, my children or my grandchildren, I'm going to meet them in heaven someday, and they're going to share about the legacy that I left 
behind. How many of that's what that's what we want to do. We've got to consider how brief and precious life truly is. Uh, in verse uh, 16 it says, But now you who boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Let's not make plans without God. That's boasting. That's boastful arrogance. Let's consider what God's plans truly are. After all, if you remember, he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, you may not even think about it. It's just you just going through everyday life. Monday morning, tomorrow, you're going to wake up and say, I've got to go to the doctor's office. I've got to go to the grocery store. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to this place or, or that place. But the reality is, let's take God into consideration. <laughs> God, this is a day that you have made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. What do you have for me today? I'm going to walk in expectation. Maybe I get to encourage somebody today. Maybe I get to influence somebody today. Maybe I get to read this devotional so that it will speak into the life of another. And what you end up doing is when an opportunity comes, you're ready because you're expecting it and God uses it. And then he finishes up in our text in verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. James says this morning, first you've got to know the good you ought to do. Don't speak evil of one another or slander one another, but build others according to their needs in Christ Jesus. That's good. It's good to encourage. It's good to uplift. It's, it's good to be discerning and to be loving, to speak truth and do it in love. That's good. It's good to invite God into your plans. To say, God... This is what I'm praying for the end of this year, into December and into 2020, 21. God, guide me and lead me in that. So know the good you ought to do, but then it says do it. <laughs> it's one thing to know God's word. It's another thing to apply it. So it's saying, God, God, show me what I need to do, but give me the strength, the tenacity, the endurance, the boldness, the courage to do what I need to do. Because that's what God will do if you'll ask Him. He will provide it. So submit to God. This is our second point. Submit to God in the way you make plans. I just want to give you just a few applications to take away. Number one, remember that God is interested in the drama in your life. Did you know that? All of the drama, all the little things and the big things, your plans, your conflicts, some of the things that are causing you great stress... God is concerned about the drama in your life, and He wants to be involved in it. He wants you to invite Him into the conversation. God, I'm at a crossroads right now. I don't know if I should turn left or right. God, I'm kind of in a season of waiting, but God, I want to invite you into the conversation. You know, some people tell me sometimes, I don't want to bother God, you know. Especially with these little, he's got a lot of things. Well, God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He can do all things and he desires to know you and to know about the details of your life. He's your father. I don't know about you, but if you have children, well, are, are they still little? But I'm thinking when they grow up and they're going to college and they're going to the, I want to know about the little details of their lives. I want to know what things are happening and the exciting things that are going on. God wants to know that too. So start talking to God about it. Share about with Him the drama, the conflicts, and the heartaches that you're facing. Secondly, make plans accordingly. Say, I'm going to do this or that, Lord willing. It's a good thing to say, yeah, I'm going to do that if it's God's will. It just reminds us of that. Thirdly, don't be a backseat driver. 
If you give the Lord control over your life, and don't say, God, I think you turned the wrong direction. God, why are we waiting here so long? Uh, we've been here way too long. We, we need to get moving. And we can sometimes be a, a backseat driver. And then thirdly, just trust God. Trust God in what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's placed you where you're at for such a time as this. Even the challenges you're going through. Things that you would have never imagined. God can use it for his glory in mighty and magnificent ways. How many know if you are going through a hardship and you're still shining the light of Christ and trusting the Lord, you are an encouragement to others around you because they see the hardships you're going through, but you're still holding on to Jesus. And he's getting you through it. And they know that, they, that, you, that God can get them through it as well. You never know the, the, the impact your testimony is making. Even in the restaurant, if you sit down to actually pray, people are watching and they consider that and they say, well, maybe I should begin my relationship back with God. Maybe I should start praying. You never know what God is going to do in all of it. So just to leave you with this, submit to God and not just what you say, but surrender to God in the plans you make and invite Him into those conversations. And I just want to close with this hymn from Francis Ridley Havergal. I think it really captures the essence of the encouraging words we've heard from God's word. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is Thine own. It shall be Thy royal throne. Can we pray? Father, thank You for these beautiful words of this hymn. But Lord, it is not just a song that we sing, it is a prayer that we pray. Uh, Father, take our lives and let them be consecrated only to you, Father. Let our voice be used for ceaseless praise, for you are worthy of it, Lord. I pray in all ways, Father, whatever our plans may be today, this week, the future, or years to come, Lord, we invite you into it. We pray that you guide and direct our steps moment by moment, day by day. If there's any way, Lord, that you want to challenge us in the way that we speak with one another and submit to you in the way that we talk with others, Lord, we pray that you would just examine our hearts and lead us in the way of your doing, Lord. Father, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you, wants to make Jesus their Savior and their Lord, I pray that they can say this as I say it aloud. Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I know that the wages of sin is death and eternity without God and his people forever. But I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Today I make him my Savior. I receive the forgiveness of sins. I make him my Lord to follow him all the days of my life. And Father, I invite Jesus into my future plans from this day forth and forever. Father, we praise you and thank you for these things. As we sing our song of invitation. We just pray that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts and allow us to get right before you as we partake of communion as well this morning. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.